Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the beautiful weather you've given us today. We thank you for this building. We thank you for you. We thank you that you always remain the same. We can always anchor our souls into you. You are our bedrock. You are our foundation. We thank you for your word that reveals to us who you are and, and your plan for us, what you have for us to do in this life. So, Lord, I pray that you would open up our ears and our hearts this morning, that your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in elementary school, uh, one of my favorite books I had to read was the novel Hatchet by Gary Paulson. Maybe some of you have heard of this. Uh, the 30th, 30th anniversary version is now available on Amazon. In the, in the beginning of the story, the, the main character, a 13-year-old boy named Brian, is in a one-pilot pl plane on his way to see his father for the first time after uh, his parents got divorced. While over the Canadian wilderness, the plane crashes, killing the pilot and leaving Brian as the sole survivor. The rest of the story then focuses on Brian's quest for survival in the Canadian wilderness with only the clothes on his back, a ripped up windbreaker, and a hatchet that his mother had given to him as a gift to use when he visited his father in, in, the, in the woods. Brian now had to figure out how to survive in a world of absolute unknowns and total instability. There are many of us, if not all of us, who are suddenly finding themselves in a world of many unknowns. For starters, we now are, are finding ourselves in a rapidly developing post-COVID world. Never thought we'd get to this point, did you? And many are now filled with the fear of once again having to figure out what the normality of life is. There are some who have lost loved ones and are wrestling with the depression, confusion, heartache, and anger that goes hand in hand with that. There are some who are facing a world of some other kind of stability, whether it be occupational or financial or familial, or you just don't feel safe. In short, in one area or another, and to a greater or lesser extent, we're all dealing with some kind of unknowns or instability in our lives. And like I said, next week we'll start on our series on the Gospel of John. But this week I thought it would be good to go back to one of the first men of faith in the Bible to look at one of the many times where he wrestled with trusting God. We'll see what God's word tells us about trusting him, especially with the fears of the unknown and times of instability in our lives. This man named Abraham had to deal with a lot of having to trust God in certain situations. But this morning, we're going to be looking at a situation that happens pretty early on in Abraham's life of faith. Before we get to that, though, let's be reminded of what has happened so far in Abraham's life of faith to get him to that point. And all this may be new to some of you, so I want, and I want all of us to be on the same page by the time we get to our passage this morning. I want us all to see all that God has already showed him in his newfound life 
of unknowns and instability. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. That's where we're going to start in, in uh, summarizing this. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Genesis chapter 11. It's the very first book of the Bible. Just keep flipping until you get to chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 27, or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app. I'm going to summarize all of this till we get to chapter 12, verse 10, or else you'd be here until 5 o'clock this evening. So I'm going to summarize all that. So I'm going to, I'd like for you to follow along, though, starting in chapter 11, verse 27, and skim over this with me as I go through it. If you weren't aware before, the famous man of faith that we know as Abraham did not start out with that name. His name was originally Abram which meant father, a cruel twist of irony as he and his wife Sarai were childless and were not physically able to bear children. God later renames Abram to Abraham, or father of nations, when he promises Abram that he would miraculously give him and his wife a son, who would be the first of many nations." Now, when we pick up in chapter 11, verse 27, we find out that Abram did not come out of nowhere. He had a father, just like any of us, named Terah, and he had two other brothers originally. Tragically, one of Abram's brothers, named Haran, dies and leaves behind at least one child named Lot. You might have heard that name before, Lot. For this to be recorded in Scripture has to mean something. Moses didn't include this for no reason. For this to be recorded in scripture has to mean something. We don't know how or why Haran passed away while all the family was living in the Mesopotamian city of Ur. But perhaps God had Moses include it in the writing of Genesis to explain why Abram is so close with his nephew Lot. Abram is childless and Lot is now fatherless. The specific uncle and nephew relationship would then be naturally strong and close, and that will come up time and time again as we go through Genesis. Loss of a loved one, especially within family, is devastating. There's no way around it. It sets that family on a course none of them thought they would go. Even in the midst of family tragedy, we have to remember that God knows everything that has happened. God knows everything that is happening, and God knows everything that will happen to you. He loves you very much. He experiences your pain right alongside with you, and he will dry your tears. God does not like death. It does not make him happy. It is the consequence for what his most precious creation did. The father was heartbroken when his own son, the second person of the Godhead, was crucified. The greatest victory for humankind is Jesus defeating death. That is our greatest hope. God knows what you are going through. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 tells us, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is, is our merciful Father, and He is the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. 
Turning back to Abram again, we find out in verse 30 that he and his wife Sarai are unable to have any children. Here's the second blow to Abram. He's gone through the death of his brother already. And now he has to deal with the fact that he cannot have any children. What else do we know about Terah's and therefore Abram's family? Well, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, we find out, Joshua said to the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River in Mesopotamia, and what? They worshipped other gods. Abram originally was thoroughly pagan. He did not know the one true God before God put, to, uh, commanded him, called him to put his faith in him. In other words, Abram was not raised in a household that believed in the one true God. His father raised him and his brothers to worship the gods of the ancient Chaldeans. That is, the patron gods of Ur and various ancestral and fertility gods. So, if you're sitting here today or you're watching online later and you were not raised in a Christian household, you're in good company. And just like Abram, you have a fantastic opportunity that you too can be the first link in a legacy of faith in Jesus for all those who come after you. And what this also goes to show is that you don't have to continue the sins tied to your family's lineage. You don't have to continue your family curses. You can be the one to break those chains. You can be the one to turn that tide. You can be the one to change a family cursed with perpetual generational sins into a family that is blessed with faith in Jesus. It only takes one person to slowly transform what your family was into what your family will now be known as. Abram's family was known as a downright pagan family until he answered God's call to follow him. Those following after him became the nation of Israel with the title, God's Chosen People. But Abram was still human, just like any one of us, and answering that call did not come that easy for him. We then finish out chapter 11 with Terah taking his family out of Ur and bringing them over to the outskirts of Canaan. Why did Terah take his family up and leave the city of Ur? Maybe it was because it contained too many bad memories that he wanted to get a fresh start for his family because of the death of his son. Well, we can get a pretty good idea, actually, of the events surrounding this departure from reading elsewhere in Scripture. In order to understand the last verses in chapter 11, we need to fast forward a lot, actually, to the book of Acts in the New Testament. We need to fast forward to Acts chapter 7, where the deacon Stephen is about to be stoned to death for his faith in Jesus Christ, and he's giving one last appeal to his Jewish brothers and sisters before they kill him to believe in Jesus. We read in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, this was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. 
So Abraham left the land of, Je of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. You might have heard before that God, gave, that God gave his call to Abram for him to put his faith in him back in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then Abram immediately obeyed. But according to Deacon Stephen, in the end of, chapter, uh, of Genesis chapter 11, that was not the case. God first issued his call to Abram sometime back in Genesis 11. And when Abram's father died, God issues it again. Abram didn't obey right away. So in other words... Again, didn't God, uh, Abram did not obey God fully right away. We can imagine that the one true God, probably for the first time ever, appears to Abram, appears to uh, thoroughly pagan Abram, and tells him to go to a land that he would show him. Abram, obviously quite shaken, probably went and found his father and asked him for his advice on what to do. Abram may have even been so convinced that this is what he should do, that Terah may have even then exclaimed to Abram, you want to leave me and your entire family and your inheritance? Nonsense! We'll all go! So we have recorded in Genesis chapter 11, verse 31, that Terah takes his family, including Abram, Sarai, and his grandson Lot, and leaves Ur. The patriarch of the family that Terah is, however, makes the decision for Abram that the family will not just be wandering around the world until some weird unknown God tells them that they've made it, but will instead settle in a nice area. We read that Terah apparently names the land he has decided to settle in after his lost son Haran. Does God simply make himself okay with this new arrangement that Terah has made for his family, though? No. After some time that this family is living in Haran, Abram's father, Terah, dies. It is now time for God to visit Abram again and issue his original call to him. And that's what brings us to the beginning of chapter 12. In verse 1, God tells Abram to do the unthinkable. God tells Abram to leave everything he's ever known to go to a land he didn't even know the location of yet. Talk about a world of unknowns and instability, right? Back in this time period, your entire well-being was connected to your family. We find out from verse 1 that Abram had inherited the title, responsibilities, and entitlements of now being the head of his father's household. He was the patriarch now, following his father's death. He was the one to determine the path that the family would now take, and he was well on his way to making a great name for himself. But then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, that unknown God shows up again and throws a monkey wrench into all of that. Out of nowhere, God tells him, once again, to abandon all of that. What that also means is also abandoning all the protections, provisions, and connections that went along with that. Abram would lose everything he was and had, and for what? For this new, previously unknown God to provide for him, bless him, and to make a name for him. Now that would obviously have to take a lot of trust, amen? To leave everything you've ever known to follow a previously unknown God for him to provide for you and protect you. 
No wonder Abram didn't want to fully obey God right away. But now God has grown him to be at the place where he can do it now. Even then, this would take a lot of trust on Abram's part. But what does he do this time? This time he obeys. Abram forsakes his past, his present, and his future with his father's estate and all that he's ever known. Takes his wife and his nephew Lot and sets out for the land that Moses and the Israelites have their eyes focused on as he's writing Genesis, the land of Canaan. Abram is now the first missionary for the one true God in this world of unknowns. We read in these verses that the first place in that land he stops at is the sacred Canaanite pagan shrine at Moreh. There, it's not a Canaanite god who appears to Abram. It's the one true God. And there, in the midst of pagan Canaan, right at their sacred shrine, Abram makes an altar to the God he knows is the only real God and the one he's following. Talk about a witness for God in the heart of the territory of the prince of darkness and the enemy of our souls. Right there at the Canaanite sacred shrine, Abram builds an altar to God. From there, Abram doesn't actually settle anywhere in Canaan. He has given up the land to which he was entitled to by worldly standards, Ur, and never has land to call home ever again. Acts 7.5 says, But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. Abram lives out the rest of his days as a roving nomad, having to trust God at every turn for his protection and provision. But in human times, that's very hard to do sometimes, isn't it? In a worldly sense, that's a life of total economic and domestic instability. We've traced Abram's background when God called him the first time and what happened instead, when God called him a second time and how he fully obeyed this time, and how things were after he made that decision. But time passed and Abram was still human and much like us, he still struggled with complete trust in God. See, trusting God is pretty easy when things are going well, right? I don't think many of us really have a problem with trusting God when things are going pretty well. It's when things start getting complicated and uncomfortable that trusting God starts to not be as clear to you. Up to this point, God has grown Abram's faith to the point where Abram is pretty comfortable trusting God for his provision and protection. But all of a sudden, God throws another experience into Abram's life to drive him to trust him, even when everything seemed up in the air. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. I wanted to go through all of that to show you how much Abram has already been through. How much he's already gone from being thoroughly pagan to follower in the one true God. And how much God has already grown his faith. And here's why. We're never done growing. <laughs> Thank you. We're never done growing. There will never be a point when we've arrived in our faith. God will always bring new 
and difficult experiences in our lives to drive us to deeper and deeper levels of trusting him. We should never be surprised by these trials because God has his perfect reasons for them and he will always use them to grow us and our faith. So let's pick up in verse 10 with this next difficult situation Abraham finds himself in and now has to trust God with. Chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. All of a sudden, there's a famine. Everything's going well. Abram's trusting God for his provision and protection, and everything seems to be going along fine. And then, bam, a famine comes out of nowhere. As one biblical scholar pointed out, the very fact that Abram even left the land that God had already told him he was going to give to his descendants, Canaan, to go down to Egypt, already meant that Abram was trying to take things into his own hands. He should have stayed in Canaan, and he would have avoided this whole trouble that he, he, he will now find himself in. When God promised Abram back at the beginning of chapter 12, that he would bless Abram in the land that he would give him, what did that also include? Provision in that land, especially when it looked like a hopeless situation. God's already promised this to Abram back at the beginning of chapter 12. I will provide for you in the land. But instead of staying put, and trusting God for his provision in the midst of that famine, like God would do for Abram's son Isaac many years down the road, Abram took matters into his own hands. That was his first sin in this experience. That wrong move would then force him to make another worse move. When you force something to happen the way you think it should happen, or the only way you can see it happening, what's the very next thing that always happens? You guys know this. You guys know this. You now have to come up with your own solutions to those problems that will inevitably arise when we don't trust God and we rather take matters into our own hands. Amen? That's what always happens. That's what happens with Abram. A potential problem arises in Abram's mind, and he's stuck having to come up with his own human solution to it. Verses 11 through 13. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Now the human logic behind this plan is that in ancient culture, while a local ruler might have the power to just add any woman he desired to his harem, he would most likely see fit to negotiate with that woman's brother. That's why many years down the road we see Abram's servant negotiate with the brother of who would become his son's wife. However, if there was already a husband involved, that local leader would most likely choose to just get rid of the husband. It was just easier that way for him. That was how things were back then. So Abram and his wife, Sarai, follow through with this plan, verses 14 through 16. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. 
Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. The phrase describing Sarai's beauty may be describing her physical beauty. There's a good chance of that. But it can also describe a certain confidence and poise and elegance. It could be either one of those or both of those. We don't really know. But what Abram suspects will happen ends up happening, and he puts his plan into action. Sarai is brought into Pharaoh's household, and Abram, seemingly Sarai's brother, is compensated very well for this negotiation. He probably was feeling pretty good about himself at this point, thinking to himself, wow, I am such a smart guy. Look at the plan I came up with, and it worked. Not only that, but I've become even wealthier for my own plan. Look how smart I am. That seem familiar to anybody here? <laughs> but at the same time, I wonder if Abram was getting nervous, too. After all, did he fully think this through? How is he going to get his wife back after all this? Was he doomed to be without her for the rest of his life? You see what happens when we try to come up with our own plans? without trusting God in our world of unknowns and instability, just creates more trouble for ourselves. That's the last place we want to be in, especially when we're already in a world of unknowns. Furthermore, it's generally assumed that it's during this experience in Egypt that it, we read here, Abram acquired male and female servants. So, it's probably during this experience in Egypt that Abram acquires the Egyptian servant girl, Hagar. Anybody remember that name? That name sound familiar to anybody? For those of you who don't know this story, it's with Hagar that Abram and Sarai implement another humanly crafted and ill-advised plan to make a child happen their own way. Do you see the unfortunate irony here? Here, through a plan Abram thinks is his best plan ever, he gives his wife away to acquire a woman who in the future he will use to replace his wife in his version of God's plan. Abram's scheme in Egypt sets in motion further heartache and misery that lasts even to this day between the descendants of Abram's two children, Ishmael and Isaac. And all of this, this is all that ever comes out of taking matters into our own hands. God always knows what's best for us, even if we think we know what's best for us. So God starts to rescue Abram and Sarai from their own scheme. His mercy Verses 17 through 20. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. 
At this point, Abram's and Sarai's only hope in all of this is God's mercy upon them in rescuing them from their just plain foolish plan. How did Pharaoh know the plagues were connected to Abram and Sarai? Well, plagues connected to the superstitious ancient Egyptians were always considered bad omens. So either God used a plague that was connected to committing adultery in the Egyptians' minds, or Pharaoh just deduced what was the last thing he did before the plagues came. But whatever happened, Pharaoh figures out it was because Sarai was actually Abram's wife and not his sister. So again, being very superstitious, along with wanting the plagues to stop, Pharaoh orders Abram and Sarai to pack up and leave Egypt. And because of God's mercy, Abram and Sarai are freed from their very foolish plan. Our plans and schemes, even those we think are the smartest ever, if they're not lined up with God's word and God's leading, will always blow up in our faces and have the potential to have painful ramifications for the rest of our lives. That is why it is so important, no matter how difficult it is, and no matter how unstable things are, to see what God wants for you in every situation, rather than just trying to fix everything yourself. God's plan may not even make sense to you at the time, but it will always be infinitely better than your own wisdom. Paul puts this in the ultimate perspective, contextually as it pertains to salvation, but ultimately in all things. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. By this logic, even our most well-thought-out plan, even our hours spent in the middle of the night trying to come up with a good solution to our problem, even the most meticulous manipulation we do to try to make our plan work, all of that is still devastatingly pathetic if even God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. This is why it's so crucial that we seek God's wisdom in every situation and not try to manipulate or force something to happen the way we think is best. If you don't know what you should do, the Apostle James tells us to go directly to God in prayer for that wisdom. He says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for, your, for asking. So if he's not going to rebuke you for asking, ask him time and time and time and time again, no matter what situation it is. You might be saying, yeah, but you have no clue what I'm dealing with. It's all fine for you to be standing up there and saying all these things, but you have no clue what my life is. You have no clue what I'm dealing with. You have no clue what unknowns and instability I'm facing right now. How am I supposed to find out what God wants me to do? I may not know your problem, but guess what? I do know what God's word says. I do know who does know what you're going through. Romans 12 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you 
to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Don't think about things the way this world thinks about them. Don't process through your problems the way the world processes through them. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, changing your entire mind, changing the entire way you process through everything. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Like we talked about extensively a couple weeks ago, since Christ is said in 1 Corinthians 1 to be God's wisdom, and since Christ is also the embodiment of the word of God, as it says in John chapter 1, then we are to seek God's wisdom by searching his word. Moreover, we need to make sure our lives in every area are right with God, as it says in Romans 12. Then we will be the most sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading and be able to figure out what God's will is. Which is good and pleasing and perfect or mature. Good and pleasing and perfect to who? You? No. That which is good and pleasing and perfect to God. Now that's very important. That may or may not match up with what we think is good and pleasing and perfect. Very often it doesn't. But it will always be what God determines is good and pleasing and perfect for his own good and pleasing and perfect reasons. We will always face a world of unknowns and stability and and instability. And you know what? As difficult as that can be sometimes, Facing a world of unknowns and instability is the best place for us to be in. Why? Because it forces us to be as connected to God's word and the Holy Spirit as possible. It forces us to take a hard look at ourselves and see if there's anything, any sin we're harboring in any area of our lives. To get it right with God so we can be as in tune to his Holy Spirit and and the leading of his Holy Spirit in our lives as possible. It drives us to the throne of heaven in prayer to lay ourselves down at his feet in humility so he can lift us up. It compels us to seek God for his wisdom and lay all of our fears and our worries and our anxieties and our heartache and our depression and our confusion at his feet. It strengthens us to wait on his timing and his healing in our lives. That's the best place for any and all of us to be. As we do that, the Holy Spirit will change the entire way we think and process through everything. In time, he'll heal our deep, and, and our deep emotional scars and heartache. When we're faced with an impossible situation, when we seek him and we wait on him, he'll lead us to do what he wants us to do. He'll provide for our physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual needs when he determines is the best and perfect time for it. So in these different worlds of unknowns and instabilities, God has never changed. 
Our world will change always, and our life situations will always change, but God never changes. His word never changes. His promises always remain the same. Keep going to him for your courage, your strength, your peace, and your healing, especially in the most fearful, painful, and confusing times of your life. I want to close out our message time with some very famous verses that are directly connected to what we're talking about. Don't close your Bibles yet. Let us all really let these, sink, these words sink in and let them become one with our innermost being. You've heard these before, but let, let these sink in and become a part of your innermost being. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Don't try to come up with your own plan, your own solution, trying to manipulate things, trying to make something work the only way that you see fit. Don't depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in just the difficult things. No, okay. Some people are shaking their heads. Some people are looking somewhere else. (laughs) Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Wait on him. He will show you which path to take. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for this passage in Scripture. About this experience pretty early on in Abram's life, a life of, of faith anyways, where he had to wrestle with trusting you once again because another new monkey wrench was thrown into his life. Lord, I pray that if we're facing a world of unknowns and instability, I pray that we wouldn't try to come up with our own solution to whichever problem we're facing right now, but that we would let that go. We would lay it at your feet. We would surrender that to you. And we would say, God, show me what you want me to do. I'm giving up my anxiety over wrestling with this and trying to come up with my own solution for it. I'm done with that. I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on your timing to reveal to me what you want me to do. I will seek your word and I will seek the leading of your Holy Spirit in my life. And then I will go forth with courage and boldness knowing that this is what you want me to do. I pray that we will live the rest of our lives seeking your kingdom above all else and and going to you for all the wisdom that we need in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.